We have more evidence and more scholarship to have us depend upon the absolute reliability of the Bible being the Word of God. God, in His perfection, worked through imperfect human beings to write the perfect Word of God. How much can we trust the Bible? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. In the Gospel of John, we hear about a woman caught in adultery. It's a powerful example of grace that has impacted believers through the centuries. So was this a real event? Today, David continues our in-depth study of the Gospel of John in a message called Jesus's Extraordinary Grace. Before I bring you God's word that he has laid on my heart from John the eighth chapter, verses one through 11, a very familiar story, uh, let me just make a couple of quick announcements. Hope Kids, please note June the 22nd for rising first through third graders. Go to momentsofhopechurch.org uh, online to register there. Great chance to get to know some other kids. Have a great time at Hope Farm. Also on June the 24th, uh, 9 to 4 uh, p.m., uh, same idea. Go to momentsofhopechurch.org and register there. A great chance to get to know people from fourth to sixth grade. So. Those are two events we're offering this summer at Hope Farm uh, to try to help continue to disciple our kids, get to know one another, and continue to develop relationships in our church. What a joy it is to share with you God's Word. Uh, I love God's Word so much, and I believe this book is true. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Lord, sanctify them with your truth. Your Word is true. So let me introduce today's message in a different way. I want to talk to you about the reliability of God's Word. You know, this book put together in 66 books, 39 in what's called the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, 27 in what's called the New Covenant, the New Testament, was written over a period of about 1,500 years by 40 different authors in several different languages on three different continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. And amazingly, over time, it is seen as the Word of God, and its unified message is salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you go from Genesis 1-1 through the book of Revelation, you'll see the story of Jesus unfolding, and it is truly something that only could have been written by the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the Scripture's strong self-attestations is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says that all Scripture is inspired by God. All of the Scripture, every verse that's in this book, which, by the way, is interesting to note that it was in the 1200s that the chapters were added to the Bible, and it was in the 1500s that all the verses were added in the Bible. In the original autographs, which we don't have, the autographa, uh, those first writings by the inspired men who wrote the Scripture, again, which we don't have, there were no chapter and verses. They were added in the 1200s, the chapters, in the 1500s, the verses, to help us be able to find different scripture passages, and thus the Bible is given to us as we know it today. Uh, these men, specially chosen by God, uh, were the authors of the Bible, starting with Moses and the first five books of the Bible, then other authors as well. And what we believe as Christians is that this book is divinely inspired, that it's a bit of a miracle that the Holy Spirit 
would come upon human authors and even in their sinfulness, give them the necessary insights they needed in order to pin the exact words of God. Now, again, if we had the original autographs, the first versions of every author's hearing from the Holy Spirit and writing down what they needed to write down, we would have the exact immutable word of God. But we don't have that. What has happened through the centuries is there would be scribes and editors who would write down what the previous person had written down all the way back to the original author himself. And you can well imagine how without electric light bulbs, but only by candlelight, these scribes had to painstakingly copy every single word from the previous text because the texts were written on papyri. They would, after some period of time, start to crumble into dust, and they had to write down the next words on the next papyri in order to preserve the Scriptures from generation to generation. That was very important for the Jewish people especially. And as these words were written down, you can imagine that there were times that there would be scribal errors where somebody would mistakenly do a mispronunciation or not have punctuation marks exactly correct. I mean, we all are fallen. We don't every way write down exactly what we're copying. But whenever it was discovered by an editor, a scribal error, that whole piece of paper, that whole papyri would be destroyed, crumpled up, burned up, and they'd start all over again. Can you imagine, for example, writing the book of Isaiah, and you're at the 66th chapter, and you make a mistake, and the editor comes in and sees the mistake, he crumbles it up, throws it away, and you've got to start all over again. Well, that's what happened. But even with that painstaking oversight of written documents, there would still be errors that would happen from one generation to another. So with the New Testament Greek manuscripts, for example, we have around 5,800 of them, and they have been written over several centuries, and they have been passed down through the generations. And (coughs) you would have a scribal error that might occur, and then the next scribe would then copy down that scribal error, and you would then have what's commonly held by some critics of the Bible today. You have 25,000 inaccuracies and errors in your manuscripts. Well, if you have 5,800 different manuscripts and you have those errors copied down in all of those manuscripts, you can see it doesn't take long to get to 25,000 errors. But what you need to know is that in those errors, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that affects any doctrinal statement or sound biblical commitment that we Christians hold dear. In fact, scholars have gotten together and said, if you had 100 manuscripts that 99 of them would be exactly the same. You would have one that would have some of those differences in the scribal errors, but 99 would be the same. Now, let me ask you something, and I would never recommend you do this, but if you went to Las Vegas as a betting person, and I don't ever think that's a good idea because I think God wants us to work for our money, not gamble for money, but nevertheless, you are guaranteed a 99% success on anything that you bet on, would you take those odds? I certainly would. 99 out of 100 manuscripts would be exactly as God intended. So we have all of these different, just in the Greek manuscripts alone, 5,800, and many others in other manuscripts. 
And here's what's so fascinating. For those who are severe critics of the Bible, if you did a comparative study of the reliability of the biblical manuscripts and looking at all the different errors and seeing that they're mostly in punctuation or in a word or something that changes nothing of the doctrinal intent whatsoever, and and you look at that and you then look at other pieces of literature, uh, for example, in Homer's Iliad, uh, there was a 400-year distance between when he wrote that and when we have the next possible manuscript. 400 years of difference. Uh, You have, for example, Julius Caesar in his writings, you have a 950-year difference between when Caesar actually wrote it down and when we have the first manuscript that shows us what he wrote down. You have this in other poetries that we have in our existence. And here's my point. With the New Testament, you can place these manuscripts in such exactness within 40 years of the actual life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then compare that to 400 years with the Iliad, 950 years with Caesar, and other 400 years parentheses between writers and what we actually have as manuscripts. If you took the same kind of attitude that some critics have toward the Bible and say, oh, we just can't trust it because of the manuscript evidence and the errors that are therein, and you use that same kind of discipline in poetry and literature and history, you would have to eliminate practically every poetry and literature and history department at every major university in America today. The point being that we have more evidence and more scholarship to have us depend upon the absolute reliability of the Bible being the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit worked through human authors somewhat miraculously, but God did that. I mean, what's more miraculous than Jesus being perfectly divine and perfectly human at the same time? God, in His perfection, worked through imperfect human beings to write the perfect, inerrant, infallible Word of God. So one of the reasons I deeply believe in this book is because of the historical accuracy of it, the academic disciplines that it can be placed under, and also the fact that, again, over 1,500 years with 40 authors on three different continents with many different writers, all of those kind of things that we come up with a one unified theme about Jesus Christ coming into the world to save us from our sins and giving us the gift of eternal life. Now, why did I go through that very brief historical overview of the Bible. It's because of John the 8th chapter, verses 1 through 11. For those of you who have your Bibles, and I encourage you to open your Bibles anytime I preach, please bring them when I preach in public when we come back together. Um, We're not sure exactly where that's going to be on June the 13th. We'll let you know as soon as we know. But if you have your Bibles with you, you can make notes, you can remember what I said, and it's so important to study God's Word if this Word is true, as Jesus said in John 17, verse 17. So as you open your Bibles, you're going to see a little parenthesis at the top that might say something like mine says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. They don't include what we read last week when it says after Jesus you know, cried out, out of your innermost beings, I'll give you streams of living water. And there was debate about him and division about him. And then everybody went home. That's verse 53. That's not in the earliest manuscripts, nor is John 8 verses 1 through 11. So I just find the Bible fascinating because the scholars who use this book are trying to tell us the accuracy of the information that they have. Other holy books have things hidden from us. We can't get to them because the scholars who oversee them won't let us at them. 
And so people ask me all the time, well, which Bible should I read? And, and you have biblical interpretations and translations that are word for word. Uh, those are the ESV, that's this one, the English Standard Version. I teasingly call it the extra spiritual version. It's the one I use and I love the most because the scholars, plural, the many who have put this book together, uh, did so uh, trying to give an exact interpretation of the words in the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic into our English language. So the ESV does that. The NASB does that. The New King James Version does that. The King James Version did it, but that was written in so much old English, I don't quite think it's as good in a literal word-for-word translation. The second kind of translations you have out there are ones that look at the different divisions of the Bible, like poetry and the wisdom literature. Um, The Psalms were worship songs written in poetry and acrostics by the Jews. And so when you interpret them, you need to try to understand the poetry of the day and other factors. Well, there are different versions that try to look at the um, context of all of the different stories and try to give you a helpful insight into what may have happened. It's not an exact word for word. It's kind of an idea to idea. And that would be like the NIV, the New International Version, and the New English Bible. Uh, that would fall into those uh, particular styles. The, the third style is the paraphrase. And that is um, mostly, or a lot of times, individuals who are giving a paraphrase of the text to try to make the understanding just understandable. They're they're trying to take the big ideas and make them certainly understandable. You have like the Living Bible with Ken Taylor. You have the Message with Eugene Peterson. And those are fine to read. You need to read them alongside the ESV and the Word for Word ones because they can help you understand what they're trying to say. Indeed, there's a text you don't completely understand, but you, you don't believe in them as much as you do like the ESV where multiple scholars are getting together to decide it because there are individuals trying to give you that particular interpretation. So again, that's the Living Bible, uh, the Message, the Amplified Version. Those are more paraphrases that are helpful, but they're not translations. So again, I use the ESV and in every major Bible, that is trying to help you understand the scholars, plural, who are trying to give you the interpretation of the text are always honest. So here they're saying to you as we begin John 8 verse 1 that in the earliest manuscripts of those 5,800 Greek manuscripts that we have, in the earliest ones that get close to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you know, within 40, 50, 60, or 100 years, this isn't in those earliest manuscripts. And in fact, the early church fathers did not include this story. So the question is, well, how did this story get in our Bibles? Two reasons. Uh, First of all, Augustine said the reason that a lot of people early on took this story out of the gospel context and it's not in our earliest manuscripts is because it's a story about adultery. And if they left it in, the church thought it would be giving licentious permission for people to be promiscuous. And so Augustine concluded that John 8 verses 1 through 11 was taken out in the early church because of that fear of people doing adultery and living lives of sexual promiscuity. And then Jerome then comes in and says, you know, and he's another translator of the Bible in the Latin, and he comes along and says, you know what? This story is not doctrinally unsound. There's nothing in it that is refuted any other place in Jesus' life and teachings. And it's so much like him, I think it should be included. So in the 5th century, this story started to get included, but it's not in the earliest manuscripts, but it's so much like Jesus. 
And it's a beloved story that many of us know. For those of us who feel condemned by the enemy, for those of us who feel like we're under the pressure of accusations, always feeling like we're not living up, we failed, we're sinners, and all of those kind of feelings that come upon us, this story is for us. I want to give you a message today that is rooted in Romans 8.1, where Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, and I am in Christ, and he is in me. Out of our innermost being flows streams of living water. For those of us who know Jesus intimately and personally, we should never, ever feel accusation or condemnation. Let's look at the story. Everybody went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. After last week's message on John 7, um, people went home to their own houses, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. And did Jesus have a home? The Bible says that Jesus had no home, that foxes have places and birds have nests, but Jesus had no place to lay his head. So he went to the Mount of Olives, and Marilyn and I have been there. Gosh, I hope one day Moments of Hope Church can take a group over to Israel, and you'll see the Mount of Olives there where Jesus uh, spent the night in uh, this particular occasion, probably resting his head against an olive tree and getting a night's sleep. So early in the morning, the, the next morning, he came again to the temple. Remember the day before he'd been in the temple in the Feast of the Booths, teaching people about how living water can flow from their souls, all the people came to him. Dear friends, if you remember John 7, 1, you you see that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the capital J Jews were plotting to kill Jesus. Why? Later on, we'll see that one of the major reasons they wanted Jesus dead was envy, jealousy. Dear friends, would you let the Holy Spirit go deep into your heart and see if there's any envy and jealousy? It needs to be uprooted. listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in an insightful conversation about this morning's e-devotion. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and with me today is Bart Noonan with West Boulevard Ministry. Bart, Tell us about West Boulevard Ministry. Uh, Thank you, Mark, for this opportunity to speak about West Boulevard Ministry and and more importantly about Jesus Christ. West Boulevard Ministry serves the spiritual and physical needs of the families and the communities within the West Boulevard quarter to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether we're doing neighborhood outreach cookouts, gatherings where we're bringing people outside of their apartments, their homes, into fellowship with one another, or we're doing Bible study bingo the first Wednesday of every month at Little Rock Apartments. And uh, we gather anywhere from 50 to 70 children that we share the gospel with and play bingo after our Bible study portion of the night. And a couple weeks ago, there's a young man who we've been walking with now close to three years who came in, he, he forgot something, like a lot of young young kids do, he forgot something in the um, space, and he came back in and he ended up praying out myself and all the other volunteers for the West Boulevard ministry team that were gathered there for that night and led us all in prayer and closed it out. And this young man, we've been taking to church every every Sunday for about the past year and a half. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about providing an opportunity for Jesus Christ to work inside someone's heart and, and then encourage them along the way. That sounds great. Now, Bart, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you, how would they do that? 
The best way to do is uh, either email myself at bart at westboulevardministry.org or they can call me straight up in my cell phone and I always answer. I'm sort of like a doctor. The phone's always on and that's 980-298-9027. I would encourage folks too to also go to our website, which is westboulevardministry.org and there you can see some of our photo galleries. You can see some of the blogs and a lot of things we do throughout the West Boulevard Corridor to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is great having you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jen. It's great being with you as well. Well, David, you are in the middle of processing and grieving the passing of your brother, Howard, and you really have some powerful insights to share with us today. Well, I thought it would be helpful maybe for me alone, but (laughs) also for our listeners to let me process my grief right now, for he was my five-year older brother, loved him dearly, my idol growing up, (laughs) an incredible person, a booming baritone voice that earned him a voice scholarship to college. So he had so many gifts, and uh, he would call me regularly and encourage me. So it's been hard to process how quickly he went. (laughs) Got a call about a week ago after he'd been in the hospital for a week with COVID that he had passed away. had kidney Mm -hmm. failure. Mm -hmm. And I just miss him so much. And I'm trying to figure out all the feelings and emotions I'm going through right now. Mm -hmm. But something hit me when I got the phone call from his wife, Ramona, that he had passed away, that he passed away on a Friday at 4.17 p.m. Now, that doesn't seem unusual to any listener I know, but he was born on April the 17th uh, back in 1944. And that's 4.17. Wow. His birth. And he died at 4.17 p.m. Wow. And it hit me, Jen, that that's like a bookends of his life. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Wow. God is sovereign. God oversees his world. When Howard passed away, God wasn't in heaven going, oh, no, Howard passed away. You know, <laughs> he, he was very aware that Howard had a time to be born and a time to die. And when you think of 417, you think God surely knew the absolute time when it was appropriate for Howard to die. <sighs> and as I've thought about, well, Lord, why? He was only 77. He was overseeing a really dynamic ministry in Daytona Beach, Florida. Why? I'm reminded of Isaiah 57.1, where it says, sometimes God takes the righteous to spare them from evil. And I've always read that verse when giving comfort to other people, but it suddenly gave comfort to me that it could well be with Howard's diabetes and the other physical conditions that he had with COVID, he could have had a stroke or been paralyzed or something that would have been far worse than him dying and going to be with Jesus. So he is well right now. He has a pure, perfect, (laughs) healthy body in heaven. And he is whole in every possible way. He doesn't have to worry about diabetes or COVID or anything else. He is alive. Howard Kenneth Chadwick II has never been more alive than he is right now. (laughs) John 11, 25, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, lives. That's Mm -hmm. my brother Howard right now. So... 
I just yeah. pause and realize God is sovereign over everything. He knows the ins and outs of every part of our lives. No dark corner of our lives isn't seen by him. He shines light into it, gives us hope, and that gave me comfort as I realized the total, absolute sovereignty of God in his oversight of my brother's life and death. This is amazing. God has such mysterious ways that are just beyond us, and I love this. I love the connection of 417. And you know, you've said it, and I'm friends with your daughter, Bethany, and she said, it, he is now one of the most booming voices in your cloud of witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> and the heavenly choir just yeah. got a whole lot better with my brother graduation to heaven. <laughs> he he has an incredible voice, and along with my dad's, whose voice was a lot like Howard's, that heavenly baritone section is yeah. unmatched. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Uh, thank you, Jen. And all, if you'd like to get these daily written moments of hope from me this week's about Howard and my love for him, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there free of charge. They'll arrive in your inbox every morning at 7 a.m. to give you a daily moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Again, come join us Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte. Our web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for our students heading into this new school year.